I recently read an article online, actually it was a, a blog, and a guy was talking about what it would be like if he could get inside the head of his two-year-old. And that got me thinking what it would be like to get inside of the head of my two-year-old. But that then got me thinking, there's a real difference between boys and girls. And the inside of the head of my two-year-old girl when she was two, I am pretty sure is different from the inside of the head of my two-year-old boy. So here was what I imagined. Um, this would be my daughter. After quietly getting out of bed, once the clock had a seven on it, even though she woke up at 5.30, she would tiptoe down the stairs gently into my room, and then she would stand patiently next to me until I happened to notice she's there. And when I did, here are some of the thoughts I imagine going through my two-year-old daughter's head. Flowers. I want Daddy to cuddle with me and watch a show. I love Mommy. What can I do for Daddy today? My doll needs a snack. I want to help clean up with Mommy. My diaper is wet. Maybe I should use the potty chair next time. Pretty birds. I want to color, I want to color a picture for Mommy. I love Daddy. I love the dog. Pretty dog. Where's the dog? I love Mommy. Pretty dress. I will help Daddy with dinner. I love Daddy. I love pretty flowers. I love Jesus. Now, my boy? <laughs> it's a little different. This is what I imagine goes on with my boy. Hello, world. I'm awake. Now, change my diaper. I want to play with the iPad. I think I will bounce instead of walk today. I hurt my knee. I'm going to use my outside voice all day today. <laughs> Where's my water? Where's my other water? I need something that makes noise. Why are these pants on me? I want to do it myself. I want to play with mommy's iPad. I want to move this switch up and down and up and down. Those are my toys, sissy. I hurt my finger. Where's my water? I want to repeat everything mommy says. I want to pull the cat off the couch. I want to sit on the cat. The cat bite me. I need the iPad. I want to do it myself. Change my diaper. What's this in my diaper? Oh, I want to watch a show. I need to watch a show. I want to watch a show on the iPad. I want to watch a show on the iPad while I play with the other iPad. I fell down. Kiss it. No, here. No, no, here. No, here. Where's the cat? Oh, no. The cat is gone forever. Does the cat have the iPad? Does this switch move? It does. Why are these pants on me again? I don't want to take a nap. Can the iPad take a nap also? Where's my blanket? Why does my blanket taste like that? Oh, I bet my finger. Kiss it. No, kiss it here. No, here. No, here. No, here. Where's my sissy? Where are my waters? Where's my cat? I will jump on my cat. The cat bite me. I'm not tired. No, you're tired. The cat's tired. I love the iPad. Little difference, but I can say there is something very similar about both of them. My daughter, if you ever say something that maybe sounds like you're calling her a boy, she will go, I'm a girl, daddy. And my little boy, well, you can't, actually, you can't call him anything. If you say, are you Superman? No, I'm a boy. Are you Batman? No, I'm a boy. He, he's a boy. And the other day I asked him, I said, Keenan, what's a boy? 
Me! <laughs> they are very firm on what they are, even if all the other stuff is very different. But I'm not sure that either one of them have a real grasp on what that is. My seven-year-old daughter, a little more than my son, they just know what they are, even if they're not totally sure what that means. That is what this whole series for the next four weeks is about. Who we are, and yet, I wonder how many people actually know what it means to be a disciple of Christ. I am a disciple of Christ. Well, tell me what that means. Well, it means I follow him. And that's a great start because that's what a disciple is. It's one who follows a master to try and be like that master. And yet, what does it mean to be like him? What, what is it that we, that we strive for? What is it that we evaluate our lives to determine whether we are really walking behind him or not? We have taken four marks of discipleship. Four things that characterize the ministry and person of Jesus Christ. Now, they're not exhaustive. There are lots of more words you could put up there. But here is something that I have wanted for a very long time. A church that doesn't have as its category of disciple just follow Jesus. Do you know how big that is? I mean, if we took the entire scripture and you just track down everything that Jesus was, is, characterized by, all the things. We'd have a list of 200 things. Would that be a little overwhelming for anybody in this room? Here, just become this. And I'll put this list of 200 things up there. So, much like a corporation would have values or something of that nature, we found four things that we want to focus on as a church. And for the next four weeks, we're going to look at those four things. How we see Jesus living these out, and then what that means for us to live that out. So that we are not people that would just say, I'm a disciple, what's that mean? It means me. Uh, I'm, that's me, I'm a disciple. What does it mean to follow the Lord in discipleship? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there is no greater calling than to follow you that you would send your son for us, that we would have hope and forgiveness, purpose, strength, that we could do far more than we could ever imagine because of the strength that we would have in you. And so, Lord, as we look over these marks of discipleship, may you guide all that we do. May it be for your honor and glory. And may you transform us more into the image of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I want to talk for a couple minutes. If this is supposed to be following after Jesus, then he's got to have these same qualities, characteristics. Today, our first one is generous. That Christ was generous. Now, you may think to yourself, Perhaps starting off your first service talking about money is not the best thing to do. But here's what I want you to think about. Jesus didn't give money. But there is no greater generosity anywhere than what you see in him. Because it's not just about money. 
generosity is much bigger than that. Right, let me take you through a couple of stories. And I'm going to tell you where they are, and you can look at them later, because I'm going to just walk through them quickly. Beginning of his ministry, Mark 1, he's in Capernaum. He has spent the whole day traveling, working. Hey, what do you feel like doing after you've put in a 12 to 16 hour day? This is what happened to him. The entire town came to the house he was at. And you know what he did? Not what I would have done. What he did is he ministered to them all night. He healed them, he ministered to them, because his generosity of compassion and help meant that no matter that he had gotten up early that morning and spent the whole day doing that, that when these people came to him, he wasn't going to go, you know what, i got to get up early tomorrow morning. i got stuff to do. Um, you guys come back then. I mean, like, at least go get, get some rest. He ministered to them. Not only that, he was then generous with his time with God because you know what he did the next morning? He got up before anybody else. Kind of, you know that time when you hit the bed and like an hour later you have to get up because you were up way too late and that's what he had. He's up and he is seeking the Lord. He's praying. Now this same, a similar thing happens to him later on in chapter six where he goes out to this deserted place and Mark says that they hadn't even had time to eat. They were so busy. Have you had those days where like you get to the evening and you go, I am so, oh, wait a minute. I didn't eat breakfast or lunch. I was so busy. They hadn't even had time to eat. But this entire crowd comes to him. And instead of saying, wait a minute, we need to get some dinner before we pass out here. We're getting a little delirious. He says, we got to minister to these people. They're like sheep without a shepherd and we got to help them. In fact, not only am I going to minister to them, but I want you guys to feed them because they're hungry too. His family. You know what his family was like going through the Gospels? His mother and brothers come to him one time, and they're talking to the people outside because they can't actually get to him because there's all these people surrounding him. He's inside this house, and they send word. Hey, your mothers and brothers are out there. They think you're nuts, and they want to restrain you and take you away. His brothers at one time, they try to trick him into doing something in John because they don't believe in him. And they want to get him to go prove it. And yet, when he is on the cross, he is looking out for his mother. No matter what they were doing during his ministry, what they thought of him or rejected him or anything else, when he is at that point of agony, he is still looking out for his mother. In the garden, he's at a point in the garden of Gethsemane where it is so bad that he is sweating drops of blood and all he says to his disciples is, will you guys just pray for me? This is a moment unlike any other moment in my life. Would you pray for me? And they fall asleep. And you know what he does? He goes back and he says, I'm going to pray for you so that you don't fall into temptation. Peter, Peter comes up directly to him and says, I will not deny you even if everybody else does. And what does he do? Publicly denies him publicly. He says, I don't know this man. I don't know who you are talking about. I do not know this guy. And then Jesus looks right at him when he says it. And yet, in John 21, it's Jesus who comes back to Peter and says, hey, let's get this relationship restored. Because going all the way through his ministry, he was generous with his time he was generous with his compassion. He was generous with his forgiveness. Everything about him 
and maybe the most radical. Philippians chapter 2. This is what Paul says. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Talk about generosity. I don't know about you, but if I'm there, and I've got an option of coming down here, there where there is perfect peace and bliss and angels flying around with harps putting me to sleep at night, and here where it's hot and dusty and nasty and there are raiders riding around on camels that are destroying villages and raping people and getting slaves, and I'd want to stay there. He gave up everything for us. That is generosity. That is what we are called to if we are going to follow him. Is money part of it? Yes, but there's so much more to generosity than just money. As you see in his life, I tell you what the early Christians were doing in the second century. Tertullian is writing about a group of Christians that he's a part of, and this is how he describes them. He says, as they collect all of this money and stuff, this is what they do with it. They use it to take care of prisoners that nobody else cares about. They use it to dig graves and to provide coffins for the poor because they couldn't afford it, and their bodies would just be left out there. They use it for children who are destitute because they have no parents and they have nowhere to go. And Tertullian is describing this community and the way they are looking out for everybody in their community. Because the same generosity that was in Jesus goes through his people and it's supposed to come down to us that we live generously like he did. That is our calling. Um, what I want to share with you is if that's the case, if that's what we're called to, what does it look like to live generously? What are some principles and some things that we can learn about living generously by following Christ? So I want to invite you, open your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Really, where we are starting is right in the middle of something that Paul is doing. Because back in chapter 8, Paul begins to, and, and he's very clever, um, Paul is a guy who is extremely spiritual, but also really, really practical. Right? He is, the churches in the area are getting an offering. And when I say area, I'm talking big area. Like all the way to Macedonia, down into Greece, over into Asia Minor, I mean Palestine, all of it. Because they're getting an offering for the Jerusalem church, right? It's a very poor church, and they need money. Well, the Corinthians, if you know anything about Corinth, it's a very wealthy city. Corinthians have some monetary means, and they could give, and they have offered to give a big gift to the Jerusalem church. Paul is in Macedonia at the time, and the Macedonians hear that the Corinthians are giving this big gift well, the Macedonians are really poor, but they are so encouraged by what the Corinthians are doing 
that they decide they're going to give a big gift. They're going to pull together everything they can for the Jerusalem church. So they're collecting that. And now Paul and a couple of Macedonians are going to Corinth to collect, because Corinth is south down. They're going to walk down to Corinth to collect the offering of Corinth. But Paul's got a concern. Paul is concerned that the Corinthians, who, well, they were really excited at first. They thought, what a great idea. We're going to help support this church that really needs help, but it's been a while. And perhaps their gift might not be quite as large as what they first said that gift might be. And what would it be like for the poor Macedonians if, who, they gave everything. I mean, they had nothing and they're giving it. And they get to Corinth with Paul, and the gift that the Corinthians are giving is less than what the Macedonians are giving. And so Paul, in chapter 8, he starts writing to these Corinthians saying, hey, I just want you to know, we're on our way. In fact, I'm sending someone ahead of me just to make sure that if things are ready as you've promised they would be, because I'd really hate for the, the Macedonians to get there and you know, feel kind of like, whoa, um, this really rich church is hardly given anything and we're giving all this stuff. So it's for your benefit, just, you know, that's kind of attitude. But when he gets to verse six, right, a chapter and a few verses of this, in verse six, instead of talking directly to any of the churches, he says, here are principles. Here's generosity, right? Know these things. Here's how he starts. Verse 6, the point is this. Again, chapter and a few verses. The point is this. Here's what I'm trying to get across to you. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. All right, here is the principle for generosity. It undergirds generosity. Paul used an agricultural proverb. If you sow a lot, you should expect to reap a lot. If you sow a little, you should expect to reap a little. Right, and here's what it would look like if you were a farmer. You get out there, and you've got your donkey, and you put this big sack on him, and you've got lots and lots of seed in there. You've got a satchel around you, and you pull some of that seed into your satchel, and as you walk out, you are broadcasting, spreading that seed throughout the field. Right? And what you would do is approximately 30 pounds of seed for a half acre. Right? That seed would produce up to 10 times that much in wheat. So you imagine a farmer gets out there, and he's got his 30 pounds, and he puts it all out there, and harvest time comes, and he reaps 260 pounds of wheat. Now, imagine another farmer. He's next door. He's got half an acre. He takes two pounds. And he goes and he spreads his two pounds out there. And he comes to harvest and he reaps 17 pounds. Is that surprising to anybody? Anybody taken off guard by that? You think, wow, what happened? Why is this field so small and this one's so big? The principle is pretty simple. The person who sows sparingly should expect that they would reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously should expect that they would reap generously. Hey, it's the basic principle that Paul wants to build on. Hey, the rest of it he wants, this is how generosity is to work. Right? And remember, he's telling this church that it's kind of, he's a little worried that maybe they may be backing down from what they originally said they would be giving. In three days, 
Jamie Sue Swilling is going to have a kidney transplant. Three days. Now, what is awesome about that is what led to her getting this kidney transplant. See, a little over a year ago, they, the doctors let her know that her single kidney, she was born with one, her single kidney was failing. Now, Jamie Sue is 76 years old. The transplant list for kidneys, approximately 4,500 plus people die each year because they don't get one. Her husband, Larry, said, I'm not going to let that happen. My wife of 57 years, this guy's 78. He's got bad knees. said, my wife of 57 years is going to get a kidney. So he, they live in Anderson, South Carolina, kind of hot, muggy, humid. This guy took a, one of those sandwich board signs, put it over him, and for the last year, he has walked hundreds of miles throughout the city with a sign that says, need kidney for wife. But here's the thing. After all that he did, this old man out there just sweating like a pig, walking out there to save his wife, you know what else happened? According to the University Medical Center of South Carolina, 125 other people are getting a kidney because of this guy. Because all these people that were calling in that weren't matches for his wife, because of what he did, they wanted to do something. And over a one-year period of time, 125 more people are going to get a kidney that wouldn't get one because of what this guy did. Because the more you sow, the more you are likely to reap. And the less you sow, the less you are likely to to reap. That's the principle that Paul wants us to see when it comes to generosity. But then that raises a question. It raises a question that Paul's actually going to answer in the next verse. The question is this. What does that mean for me? How much do I give? I mean, am I supposed to take the sandwich sign and get out? What do I give? How much money? How much time? How much forgiveness? How much am I supposed to go help this friend? Let's look what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Personally think, and I'll explain this at the end, I think this is one of the more dangerous verses in Scripture. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. All right, here it is. How do you decide how much you are to give? Here's what I know about probably everybody in this room. We all appreciate a little bit of concreteness. It's a better thing when a friend says, can you come help me move for the next few hours than it is to say, can you just come help me move? And you have no idea when that ending point is going to be. We'd all prefer, if we're going to go do an odd job for somebody, that they say, I'm going to pay you $50, as opposed to, I'll pay you when you get here. Because there's a concreteness that we like, and I know we all love this. What do you want to do for dinner tonight? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? 
we like that certain amount of concreteness. Paul's not giving that right now. Paul is not going to give you, everybody must spend five hours serving other people this week. In fact, and this is where it starts to get even more dangerous, the tithe. I'm going to talk about the tithe for a minute. The tithe, the word means a tenth. And it is not part of the new covenant. It is not part of following Christ in the new covenant. Because it is very specific to a tribal system. Do you know why there's a tenth? Because there were 12 tribes. One of them, the Levites, couldn't work. They, their job was to take care of the temple. So the other 11, they gave 10% of everything they had over to the Levites, who then gave a portion of that to God. The tithe was taking care of the Levites and making an offering to the Lord. I doubt anybody here is part of a tribal system right now. Right? What Paul says is not a tenth. He says, give what you've decided to give. Right? So three things. Give what you've decided to give, and here is how. Right? These are the only criteria he gives. Number one. Not reluctantly. Whatever you do decide, don't do it reluctantly. Right? That's one criteria he does give. Right? This Greek word carries the idea of grief or sorrow. It means you give something and then regret that you did. So decide what you're going to give, but don't do it reluctantly. A second thing, or under compulsion. The first one is inside. Uh, it, it's what's in us. Don't regret. Don't have grief or sorrow over this. The second is outward. Don't allow somebody else through peer pressure or guilt to be your deciding factor. And finally, for God loves a cheerful giver, give whatever you can give cheerfully. That's what God wants. Whatever you can give cheerfully, whether it's of money or time or compassion or service or friendship, whatever it is, what you can give cheerfully is what God asks for. A, uh, a mother was trying to teach her little girl a moral lesson. And so she gave the little girl a dollar and a quarter. And she said, when the offering plate comes by, I want you to decide what you're going to put in. So after church, they're walking out. And the mom says, so tell me, what did you end up doing? And the little girl said, well, I was going to put the dollar in. And then the guy up in the pulpit, he said that God loves a cheerful giver. And I knew I'd be more cheerful if I put the quarter in. <laughs> That's actually what God's asking for. And here's why I say it's dangerous. Because that's really not what a pastor wants to say. <laughs> what we want to say is, give. We've got to pay for things. Um, we need volunteers. We need a lot of volunteers to run this church service. But that's, that's not the calling. Because what God cares about most is the attitude, the heart. That's what he's looking for. Do you remember that widow? She walks in, Jesus is sitting there in that very uncomfortable spot. I mean, could you imagine if the offering plate goes around and as it goes around, I do this and I watch you. See what you're putting in. Okay. That's what he's doing. He's sitting there watching people drop their stuff in. 
And this poor widow drops in two little copper coins, half a penny today. And Jesus is like, whoa, stop everything. That lady just put in more than everybody else. And the disciples look at him like he's a moron. Did you take math? I mean, did you go to school? Some guy just dropped in a gold bar. And Jesus says, no, she gave everything she had. That's what matters. Because here's what I, can, what I can say, and in my best moments, I'm absolutely confident of this. But I can tell you, I have plenty of weaknesses just like everybody else, and my faith wavers like everybody else, so it's not always true. But in my best moments, I can say this. No matter what you get, give, God is going to provide. Whether that's money or time or anything else. No matter what you give, God is going to provide. That giving should be more about your heart than it is this whole thing here. More about you wanting to give to the Lord than it is about giving to me or to Andy or to Trey or to say, you know, we got to keep this organization going. God loves a cheerful giver. So the principle is the, the more you sow, the more you should expect to reap. And the less you sow, the less you should expect to reap. How do we decide then how much I would want to give of myself? You decide, but not reluctantly, not under compulsion, and what you can give cheerfully. Which leads to a last thing that Paul says. What's the outcome of all of this? What should we expect from it all? Two things. Verse 9, or verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times... You may abound in every good work. Here's the first thing you need to know. And I know you all know this, but we have to believe it. You cannot outgive God. You cannot give so much that he cannot take care of you. People have literally given up everything and God is still taking care of them. You cannot outgive him. Here's the first thing. He will care for you. I mean, Paul wants to go over the top in it. Listen to it again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All, 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 all. If you decide, you know what? This week, I'm gonna give two hours every day over to God. He still has provision for you. If you decide I'm gonna give, you know, normally I give $500, I'm gonna give $700 this time. God still has provision for you. Right? The first thing is, God will provide. We'll talk about what in a few minutes. But there's a second part, and it's even more key for Paul. Because right? it's not really about us giving and then God giving back. And like I said, we'll come back to it. It's about this. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower... And bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And none of you, I don't think, have fields. You're not out sowing things. If you may have like a garden in your backyard or something. But the sowing here is not you going out and sowing wheat. God says, I provide seed for those people who actually do sow it. I provide bread. I provide that whole thing grows up and does its stuff. Guess what I'll provide for you? I will provide the seed necessary for you to be generous. I will provide the seed that you sow. 
whether that seed is money or that seed is time or that seed is forgiveness or whatever that seed is, I will provide that seed. Right? Just as he does for them, he will do for you. You will be enriched in every way to be generous. God wants that. To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. There was this great interaction I had with this kid one time at a church. Um, kids, a lot of them, they love tithing so much more than adults do. I mean, they will collect it and think about it, and they'll like want to put it in their little bag, and they'll have it with them. And, and I'm having this conversation with this little girl one time about tithing. And I asked her, I said, where does your tithe go? And she said, well, it goes into this little bag right here. And I said, okay, but where does that little bag go? So we take this bag into class and we put it in the box. Okay, where does it go when it gets to the box? It goes to God. Awesome. Now I got a real challenge for you. What does God do with it? And the little girl said, he gives it back to little girls so that they can give it to God. That's the cycle. That's what Paul's talking about. It's like you take your seeds of generosity and you sow them however, and all of a sudden you reach into that bag again and it's full. It's right there again. And so this time you decide, you know what, I'm gonna give like 25 pounds this time and you reach in there and there's 30. That he will provide the seeds necessary for us to be generous. Because remember, God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, God actually wants us to do it. So that's that cycle that goes through. Now, let me address this for a moment because we need to address things honestly. What is it that God is going to provide? First, let me tell you this. You should not have in your mind, all right, I'm gonna drop a 20 in the offering plate and I'm gonna walk out and there's gonna be 40 on the ground. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. It doesn't usually work that way. Sometimes God does things like that, but that's not always how it works. In fact, I want you to think about the very circumstance. I want to go back to these churches. Corinth, Paul is saying, I want you to give a giant gift to a church that is 800 miles away from you if you go by boat. What do you think Corinth is going to get out of this? It's not, they're going to reap a harvest. They are going to reap a huge harvest in Jerusalem. Can you let your seed be reaped in somebody else's life? See, it's not always that, the, that it comes back to you. It's not always that you're sowing it. In fact, you may have to go sow it over here in somebody else's field and let them have all the benefit of it. But I guarantee you this, the more you sow, the more you're still going to reap because they're going to get it. Much like that guy that's out there doing this thing. And yes, he reaped exactly what he was looking for, a kidney for his wife. But how much more? Because it's not always coming directly to us. Sometimes what is reaped is for them. It's for the person you gave to. Can that be enough for you? But I will tell you this. Sometimes what you reap is peace. Sometimes what you reap is a changed heart and yourself. Sometimes what you reap is the ability to forgive people like you never have before. 
But as we give, we will reap. This is what Martin Luther said one time. He wrote, I have tried to keep things in my hands and lost them all. But what I have given into God's hands, I still possess. When Jesus said, store up treasure for yourself in heaven, where earth, where rust, where moth can't destroy it, same idea, giving it to him. Jesus lived generously. Oh, he certainly challenged people. He got in their face at times. He yelled at Pharisees. But he lived generously with people. He gave of himself in so many ways. To follow him, we are called to be generous. It is a mark of being a disciple. And here are the three things Paul says about it. What you need to know about generosity is that what you sow is what you should expect to reap. How you decide what to sow you decide in your own heart. Don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under compulsion. Do it cheerfully. What's the outcome? You will get provision in some way. More than that, you'll be given more provision to provide for others, to sow more, to do more generous things. Because that's what God wants of his people. The thing you need to recognize, all of us need to recognize, is one way or another, we're going to be generous. It's just a matter of what direction we point our generosity. Um, I'll end with this. I was pulling into the Walmart parking lot off of Lebanon just before Legacy. And the, uh, the car in front of me has decided that apparently they don't like the color of the back of their car, so they have covered it with as many bumper stickers as possible to hide that. And every one of those bumper stickers has one theme, Save Animals. I mean, it's like one of them was global warming is killing whales, and, you know, this many number of animals die every year because nobody, I mean, just all these stickers. You know, and that's fine, I like animals. But, as this lady's driving through the parking lot, it's early in the morning, there aren't a whole lot of people out there. There's a mom and her daughter, and they're crossing the road. And this lady is going right at them, and she kind of swerves like this, and the mom grabs her daughter and jerks her back. And I thought, lady, your priorities are mixed up. <laughs> Save those animals and plow down the people. <laughs> One way or another, we're going to be generous. Whether it's saving animals, whether it's some selfish thing inside of ourselves, we are going to give our time and our money and everything else that we are to something question is, what will you give it to? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for the love that you have given to us. That those of us who, who know you, we know that love, we know that peace, we know that purpose that comes from having something bigger than us, that comes from an expression of generous love like no other, that you would give your son. Father, help that spirit of generosity to infuse everything that we do. 
that we make conscious decisions to give of ourselves for the sake of others, for the sake of Christ. And Lord, let us reap a harvest of righteousness that we might be generous over and over again. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.